He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at, that, at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Normally, whoever reads also prays, uh, but I told Piper that today she was off the hook because I wanted to bring something to your attention to pray for. But first of all, Heather, it's great to see you. You're by yourself, obviously. Dan's not here, huh? Or he's wandering around somewhere. (laughs) Heather and Dan Wood, um, for those of you that don't know them, they've been traveling around for, I don't know, forever. Yeah, around the country, and we've been praying for Heather because of her, her fight against cancer, and it's so good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. When he comes in, I'll embarrass him. <laughs> the, um, um, <clears throat> Paul Wardlaw, our chairman, was uh, diagnosed with cancer. Okay? And um, he has... There comes Dan. Everybody look at Dan and applaud when he walks in. <laughs> See what happens when you're late. Yeah, right on time. It's good to see you, Dan. Um, I don't always present up here everybody's struggles. I do it when people uh, have their permission. Part of being on staff is that we know a lot about what's going on, but we can't always share it. And so I know that others of you are struggling as well. Paul's not alone, but he is our chairman. And uh, so he represents a group here in the church who uh, are struggling with things. You know, one of the things that this past year with coronavirus has done, it has surfaced our vulnerabilities, hasn't it? I never expected to get sick, much less be in ICU, and there I was. Um, And so um, it's just a good reminder for us that we owe our life and our health to the Lord. And it's too easy to get to depend on science. I love science. I mean, they they took great care of me when I was in ICU. But let's not forget that we do serve the one true living God. And so Paul and Donna are struggling a little bit because they have a cancer diagnosis, a pretty serious one. And I'll let you can talk to him if you want to find out any more details. But I thought that uh, we'd stop today and pray for him and the other people who are struggling in our congregation that most of you don't know about. So let's just join me in prayer. Father, we, we lift up um, Paul and Donna during this time. Lord, uh, we're so grateful for them. They have led our elders so well and have contributed so much. And now they're entering their own period of challenge and struggle. Lord, we know that you didn't make us for this. We do understand that. But we also know that you are a very gracious and loving God. So God, we pray on their behalf and the others. Uh, you don't need them. We do. And so don't even think about taking them. Just leave them with us. Um, And I don't care how you do it. You can heal them directly. You can do it through medication. It doesn't matter to me. I just pray that you would restore them to health. And uh, Father, thank you for being a God who cares, for being a God who delights in listening to our hearts, for being a God who delights in interacting with us and engaging us. So I pray that... When you're done with whatever the reason you're doing this, I pray that you would 
restore them to health, health and let them see your grace in a new and refreshing way and the others as well. And Father, uh, help us as a church to stand back a little bit in awe as we watch you work in their lives. Thank you very much. In your son's name we pray, Jesus, because we believe in him. Amen. Okay, uh, several of you have asked about my video that went out this week, the email. By the way, if you're not getting a weekly email from us, you can go to our website and subscribe from there. It's that simple, okay? And I just shared a little bit of what happened uh, on Haiti. Two weeks ago today, I was supposed to be getting on the plane to go to Haiti and do it leading a conference with 400 pastors. So when I got to the uh, gate, uh, Spirit Airlines, the manager said, we're not letting you on. What do you mean you're not letting me on? And he goes, I don't like the documents that you have. I said, well, I have all the documents I need. No, you're not getting on. So I actually went to the uh, customer service desk, and they said, um, we, you, we, you do have the right documents, but we can't override a local operations manager. It's his decision who gets on the plane and who doesn't. So I went back, and I said, I'm supposed to uh, speak to 400 people tomorrow. Is there any way you can? No, not my problem. You're not getting on. Door closed, plane leaves. <laughs> There's no other way to get to Haiti. So I rerouted, I was in Fort Lauderdale, rerouted back to Denver through Charlotte. So I'm on the flight to Charlotte, and I texted uh, Pastor Bob. Uh, he's, he's out there on the wall. He's one of the missionaries, uh, Haitian Christian ministries that we support. And I said, Bob, I can't make it. There's no flights. And he turned around and he goes, you must. He said, we have 400 pastors. We've already bought the food. The Spirit will guide you, but you need to get here. Okay. Now, you have to understand, in 22 years of traveling overseas to third world countries, every single trip, without exception, has had a challenge. So, I just stopped and prayed on the flight, and I said, okay, Lord, you got to get me there. Um, this is not my problem, it's your problem. So, so I start, uh, I could get to Port-au-Prince, which is one of the most dangerous places in the world. I could get there, but I couldn't get to Capetian, because Spirit's the only airline flying into Capetian from the U.S., so there's one airline that flies from Port-au-Prince to Cap-Haitian, and uh, they're full, they're full, they're full. Every 15 minutes on this flight to Charlotte, I'm checking, they're full, they're full. And just before I land, one seat opens up. So I snagged it. And then I got to uh, Charlotte. I go to American Airlines, explain the whole thing. I said, can you get me from Charlotte back? I have to go through Miami now to Port-au-Prince. So she does her thing. She goes, all right, you better run because they've already boarded. You're the last person on board. And uh, if you don't get there, you're not getting there. So I ran to the gate. And I was on the last seat of the plane, my favorite seat. And uh, so I sat down. And there's these two very, uh, very attractive young women, very cute young women next to me. So we got to talking. And they said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And I said, what do you do? We're in adult entertainment. Okay, two things happened. The goosebumps appeared because the Holy Spirit just showed up. Okay? I knew I was sitting in a divine moment. I go, oh, this is why I'm here. And, I, and the other thing that happened was curiosity. My curiosity gene floated to the surface. And I go, adult entertainment? What does that even mean? And they said, well, we're exotic dancers. I said, exotic dancers? What is that? Do you have pictures? I told Nancy they were one inch away from having nothing on. <laughs> so I said, well, I've never talked to an exotic dancer. What is your life like? Tell me the stories. And it was horrendous. 
98% of our clientele, they said, are men, and 98% of them are rude. And I go, wow, really? So why do you do this? Oh, for the money and other things. I mean, you know, we were talking. So we talked for about an hour, and I finally, I finally got to one of the questions I was waiting for. So do you have any kind of faith background? And they both grew up Baptist. And I said, okay, how did you get from growing up in a Baptist family to be an exotic dancer? By the way, I told Nancy I have two new friends on social media. So you just need to know they don't post the same as the people in our church. <laughs> but if Jesus can hang out with prostitutes, I don't mind hanging out with exotic dancers. Every time a picture pops up and I go, wow, Lord, they really need your help. So I pray for them regularly. And they told me the story. They just got tired of all the rules. They got tired of being treated differently because they were women and all the hypocrisy. And they just walked away from it. They walked away from it. And I had this amazing experience for two and a half hours with these two young ladies. We got done and I said, okay, let me speak to you as a pastor. Don't throw out your faith. Don't do that. I know you're having fun. I know you're making money. I get it. But don't throw out your faith. You know, you, you were raised, and I'm sure there's some good things in there. Make your way back to the Lord. And uh, one of them said, you're the first pastor ever that has treated us as humans with respect. And you've given us reason to start thinking about it. So just start thinking about it, you know, and journey your way back. The second thing is, now I'm going to speak to you as a dad, because you're young enough to be my daughters. Uh, don't give too much of yourself away. You guys are precious, especially to guys. They're not even going to remember you. Just be careful. And then, and then they both hugged me. And they said, honestly, you're one of the very first males that's just treated us as humans. And they just gave me these big hugs. What a terrible world they have come from. So every time they post on, on social media, I stop and pray for them. And uh, so that's the story. There's more stories about Haiti, but that's the one you need to hear today. Okay, so we are jumping back into Leviticus, and I think it's hysterical because when I started this Leviticus in January, most of you rolled your eyes. Really? Leviticus? We're going to talk about Leviticus. Have you ever read Leviticus? I have. It's about 8,000 rules, none of which we care about today. It's true. Um, but I'm, I started building the argument that Leviticus is the heart of the love story. Leviticus is. Remember, I use the analogy of a blueprint. Blueprint's a piece of paper. It has symbols on it for where electrical wiring goes, and it has symbols for plumbing and heating and ventilation and all that stuff. It's not a building. It's simply a blueprint. You need a builder to turn it into something, and that's what happened with the New Covenant at Pentecost. The builder came along, the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, from this blueprint, he builds the house that God envisioned all along. We, we are called the spiritual house. We're called the spiritual temple. All of that. But when you look at the entire Old Testament, that plan is found in Leviticus. That's where you capture it. So remember the background. They're at the base of Mount Sinai. They're just out of Exodus. They're out, out of the Exodus. They're out of slavery. They've been told that they're going to become priests the Lord's priests. You see, here's God. He creates a kaleidoscope of nations and he chose one to reach the rest. But they're slaves. They don't know anything about being a priest. God has to teach them. And so Leviticus lays out the blueprint 
It is the story of God's heart. Not in the commands. You have to look underneath the commands to figure out what he's trying to do. Okay? So I've argued every week that whenever God steps into our world, he does three things. He begins to mitigate evil practices. Number one. Number two is he introduces human dignity for the first time. The world can never understand or get to human dignity. In fact, I don't know of a single example in world history where culture has led us in the right direction apart from God's intervention. And then the third thing is, remember, I said every human has a moral heart, a compass that's just broken, and it's doing this. And so when God steps in, he points toward Jesus in the new covenant, and now we have that direction. We see that everywhere in Leviticus. So if Leviticus truly is the love story, then we should expect to find it all over the New Testament in our lives, and we do. And you're going to see it today. So today we're going to wrap up everything we've done to this point, including Lent and Resurrection Sunday. Well, I thought we finished that last week. Oh, no, no, no. Today's the final day. Because we went to Leviticus 1 through 14. So remember where we went. At the end of Exodus is the tabernacle. This is a place where people can come to worship. And then Leviticus 1 through 7 are the sacrifices. This is the way we worship. We argue there that we still do the sacrifices. We just don't bring animals. We'll see that at the end today. Then we went from there to the priesthood, Leviticus 8 to 10. 8 through 10. Here's what it looks like to be a priest. So you can begin to learn. They haven't even started the wanderings yet. And so they're starting to figure this out. And then 11 through 15 are the, uh, the uh, purification laws that affect the group. Okay? 16 is a day of atonement. So we stopped in Leviticus 13 and 14. Remember that that's where if you are unclean, you have to go outside the camp. So let me remind you that there are three categories in Leviticus. You have the holy, the clean, and the unclean. You have to remember these are not good and bad categories. These are categories that define life. The holy is, is where God dwells, and that's a picture of what, where we're headed. The clean is what we are like on a normal day. The unclean is when something happens that's not found in eternity. For example, childbearing. That's considered unclean, not because it's bad. It's a blessing, but you don't find it here. Okay, so everything in this unclean category, disease, what's morally wrong with that? That just means that you don't find it in eternity. So God, if you think of what it's like to to teach a kindergartner, he's giving them these simple categories to lay the groundwork for the coming Messiah because he lives here And this is what we are created for. But we actually live here. And sometimes things happen to us that put us here. It's not bad. And so he put in place a sacrificial system to allow us to move back to here. And then when we enter the temple, the tabernacle, tent of meeting, whatever, another set of sacrifices to enter here. Okay? And sometimes we find ourselves, we go backwards. That's not bad. Even with unintentional sin. There's a sacrifice to move us back to here. It's called a sin offering. He's never upset. There's no hint of any anger, angst, any of that with God. He's teaching them that sometimes you're here in a fallen world and you shouldn't be here. So let's help you get back to here. And then when you go to worship at the temple, another sacrifice moves you to here. Now, there is a fourth category. It's the evil and the wicked, but that's not us. So we're not going to talk about that very much. Very little said about that in Leviticus. That comes in Numbers.
And so that one's a whole different category. But our three categories allow us to move back and forth, and we're going to see them today with Jesus. So remember what happened during Lent. Jesus, Hebrews 13, had to go outside the camp. That he's in this category unclean. Anytime you touch a dead body, you're unclean. Okay? And so he hung on a tree. It's cursed. So now he's in the category. So Hebrews 13 said he had to go outside the camp to atone for our sins. Let us therefore join him outside the camp, which we did. For, for all the Sundays of Lent, we stood at the foot of the cross and looked at the seven things he said outside the camp. Resurrection Sunday is him coming back into the camp and into the eternal temple. Now he's holy. And we follow him on that journey. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. So we're going to wrap up all this year with this chapter. Okay? So, set the background a little bit. During the year, it was very difficult for the people to account for every sin. Okay, now remember the sacrifices. It starts off, if any one of you wants to make a sacrifice, it's based on your conscience. If you want to go thank the Lord because you have a new child, there's a Thanksgiving offering. If you're convicted of your sin, you offer a sin offering, okay? But can you offer a sin offering for every sin? You had to go offer a burnt offering and a uh, sin offering to, to take care of the sin. So, oh, oh I lost it after a woman. Now I got to take another bull down there, okay? Oh, my gosh, I just, I just coveted my neighbor's sheep. Now I got to do it again. Oh, my gosh, can you imagine that? It's not even possible, okay? It's not even possible, There's way too much left unresolved in the nation. God is teaching them something. And you'll begin to see that as we work through the day. The whole nation was impacted by unresolved sin. That's why I've said, develop a heart of repentance and forgiveness. Because your soft heart is blessing all of us. Failure to do that means your heart is getting harder. And that hurts us as a church. And so the nation is the same. Look what's happening to our nation right now. It's being hurt by this process. And so what God did was he created this great day of atonement. It's a day of recalibration. It only happened once a year. It's a day where everybody stopped working. They worshiped the Lord. And the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and offered the sin sacrifice for the entire nation. We all go, oh. All the sins we didn't even think about or know about or forgot about, they're all clean now. So once a year, he recalibrated the nation. We could probably use that in our country. It was the holiest day of the year. That's what it was. There were two offerings involved. There was the burnt offering and the sin offering. Now the burnt offering, remember that, it was designed to teach the Israelites that in order to go into God's presence, you had to offer the burnt offering. And then you had the sin offering to teach the people the need for purification from sin. Because in this category here in the holy, God cannot let you into his presence with sin. So you're here, and he has two offerings that allow you to move to here. Okay? And so those are the two offerings. Here's the procedure. Aaron had to sacrifice a bull for his own sin offering first. For him and his family. So he offered a bull as a sin offering. Okay, uh, he, and then he, what he did was he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. But then he would offer a ram as a burnt offering, which allowed him into the Holy of Holies. It was a very risky and dangerous thing to move into the Holy of Holies. Okay, he's also teaching the Israelites that 
Don't take God for granted. Don't. Boy, he has a lot of grace. And he has a lot of patience, but we have plenty of examples. There's a line in the sand with God too. Treat him with respect. And so that's what this is designed to do. Can you imagine standing around watching the high priest go into the place that no one else could get into? Wondering if he's going to come out alive. So he offered a sin offering first for his own family sin. And then he offered the burnt offering, which allows him to go into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies. And then he would offer a second sin offering on behalf of the nation. So the blood uh, was, was uh, sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then he would burn incense. Fill the Holy of Holies with incense. A fragrant aroma to the Lord is how it's described. Okay, so he would and accept the sacrifices. Then for the sin offering, he would have two goats, one of which was a scapegoat. He would take the scapegoat, they cast lots, flip the coin, which ones, you know, and they would execute the one, and then they would take the other out into the desert, and they'd let him go outside the camp. They would let the scapegoat outside the camp, and they'd let him go. Now the man who, who handled the scapegoat just became unclean. Okay? So now it's not bad because he had a job to do. So now he has to go through the purification rites to become clean again. So God's teaching them just like you do children through this process and preparing them, preparing all of us for the coming Messiah so we would understand what's happening. You, so I, you see why I say it's a love story? It's, it, it is. It's a story of God's heart, what he desires. He desires us to be holy. And so what happens when we're not? Okay. So then the last thing Aaron would do is he would take the remains of the two sin offerings, the carcasses, okay, which made him unclean. He would take them outside the camp and he would burn them out there. Then he had to go through this, the ritual process to become clean again. It wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. It's giving them the categories of life so that they could understand where they stood and what to do about it. No other nation had this. Every god, all the other gods would get angry with them, but not our god. There's no hint of anger in here. It's him simply saying, here are the categories of life where you find yourself. So let's deal with that. Okay, before I jump to what does it mean today, let me give you a comparison with Babylon. They're an example of the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations all had the Day of Atonement. They had a very similar ritual every year. Uh, God didn't create a lot of new stuff, but the content was vastly different in Israel than the rest of the nations. For example, in Babylon, they saw the need to exorcise demons, whereas in Israel, the sin had to be expunged. So they saw the, the, the nation is, as demon-possessed, specifically to, through the king. And so their Day of Atonement was designed through incantations and rituals and all this stuff to get rid of all the demons. In Babylon, the king had to undergo a ritual of humiliation. I love this. The high priest would come up, strike him on the cheek, grab him by the ears. Some of you that are older, does that remind you of your mom? <laughs> grab him by the ears, okay, and drag him uh, along the ground, and then finally make him bow down to the ground. But in Israel, the people and their behavior is the opposite. They're elevated to divine scrutiny, okay? And that's true today. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow. The finest part of you, you live with design, divine scrutiny today. And this is designed to teach them this is reality. 
with a living God. You have nothing to be afraid of. Because what Hebrews 4 teaches is that when you, when you become aware of sin, what do you find from the Lord? Punishment? No, you find grace, mercy, help. That's what you find. So he's teaching them, as opposed to the Babylonians, that the sin needs to be elevated to a high level to be seen so it can be dealt with. And that's true in all of our lives. If God wants to transform you, he has to first elevate the sin that he's trying to transform, expose it and bring it up. Because then he can, and it's really for your benefit, not his. He already knows. So that you can see, this is what we're working on together from here on out. Your anger is a problem, we're going to start working on it. And, um, and he's really good at that. So the, um, um, so the king was in Babylon was focusing on his own behavior because the nation trusted that he was the one that was going to bear, uh, bear the price for it. But in Israel, instead of focusing on his own behavior, the high priest confesses the sin of all the whole nation. Said, Lord, we as a nation have sinned, and we're wrong for that. In Babylon, the viability of society, the, whatever makes it continue on, its existence, if you will, rested solely on the worthiness of the king. But in Israel, the national destiny was equated with the moral condition of the people. That's what's more important. So you can see how God is beginning to limit these evil practices and introduce dignity. God says, I know all of your sin. Now we're going to elevate it so we can start dealing with it and forgive you. So the conclusion is that unlike Babylon, exorcism is not enough. It's not even the right direction to take. The right direction is forgiveness. Sin needs to be forgiveness and nullified. And that is unique in the world. Ancient world, no other religion had this. And that's what the Day of Atonement was all about is uh, elevating our sins to the Lord. I can't imagine what this festival was designed to be like. Celebration, joy, happiness, that the Lord would forgive us as a nation, recalibrate, wipe the slate clean. Let's get on with life now. Ah, that's good. Okay? And honestly, think about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to punish us. Oh, no, wait, that's not it. He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. There's that language. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? All these categories reappear in the New Testament. Okay. So what about today? I have just a few principles to conclude with. You heard Romans 3 read. The very first thought that I have is that the sacrificial death of Jesus makes full atonement for our sins. Romans 3.25 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, I know this is not really new information to you. What I'm trying to do is connect the dots with Leviticus because this is what happened on the Day of Atonement. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He simply overlooked them. There's no God in history that ever did that. Is that grace? That's remarkable. He left them unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, so the sacrificial death of Jesus makes full atonement for our sins. Now we're going to go to Hebrews because Hebrews from here on out, explains all of this. Hebrews chapter 13, we've read several of these verses, but it's okay, you're going to hear it again. 
Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate or the camp. Some of your translations say camp. Okay, does this sound familiar? Had to go outside the camp anytime you were unclean. Jesus wasn't afraid to be unclean, by the way. He didn't mind touching dead bodies. He didn't mind touching prostitutes. If Jesus can hang out with prostitutes, I can hang out with exotic dancers. <laughs> so, and so Jesus also suffered outside the camp, the city gate, to make the people holy through his own blood. This was done outside the camp. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record, and we saw this already, symbolically, the, the temple curtain was torn in two. You know what that means? We have nothing to be afraid of now with the Holy of Holies. As the Spirit turns this blueprint into the house of God, we have unhindered access to God. These categories disappear, by the way. They all disappear. Isn't that wonderful? And we wonder how it is that God loves. We all understand death on the cross, but it's so much bigger than that. His heart of love for us, his forgiveness for us. Okay, the second thing is that Jesus, as our high priest, entered the heavenly sanctuary and offered his own blood once and for all for us. That's the story of chapters 9 and 10 in Hebrews. Now, we're not going to read all of them, but a couple of thoughts. One is Aaron entered the tabernacle to sprinkle the blood. Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle, Hebrews 9, 24. Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. And when that veil was torn, we can follow him right into that space. That's what that means. We can follow him right into the space. Furthermore, Aaron's sacrifices could never take away sins, but Jesus' sacrifices brought eternal salvation. God overlooked the sins, but now they're dealt with. That's Hebrews 9, verse 12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, he is Jesus, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those, these are all part of the Day of Atonement, on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You see, the category of unclean disappears. We don't need it anymore. We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. Isn't that great? That's why Jesus could say in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet, he says to Peter, Peter said, wash my whole body. He said, you don't need it, you're already clean. You're already clean. That was the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, when the Spirit comes, he will cleanse you with cool, refreshing water category of uncleanness disappears for you. That's where the world lives now. That's not where we live. And then Aaron had to repeat the ritual annually. I'm tying these verses back to Leviticus. Okay? Jesus made the sacrifice once for all time. Hebrews 9.25 Nor did he, he has just said he enters into God's presence, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the, the high priest's 
uh, enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of the many. That's us. That's you. To take away your sins. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, rescue, if you will, rescue from this fallen world to those who are waiting for him. Okay, we just read verse 28, and that's the third principle, is that as a scapegoat, Jesus took all of our sins upon himself and carried them away to judgment. When he says it is finished, he meant it. By the way, the rest of Leviticus moves in a different direction. So this whole section of uncleanness as a nation ends with the Day of Atonement, which is what we just celebrated last week. You see how Leviticus... And what Jesus did all dovetail. That all fits together. Connects all the dots, if you will. Every believer today has the right to enter the heavenly sanctuary because of the finished work of Christ. Um, Burned offerings, sin offerings are no longer required. And now, look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now remember in the Day of Atonement that a high priest would spread, fill the Holy of Holies with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. Look what he says. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. That's us. God looks down. I love my children. They're great. They're wonderful. Oh, there goes Jim. He's about to sin. I think he laughs and says, now we got to help him. But he knows what to do. It's like any good parent. He deals with it. Sometimes it's punishment. Sometimes it's a kick in the tail. You know, it's whatever it needs to be. But it's always. Hmm, isn't that great? Okay, so now I'm going to conclude all of this with uh, the end of Hebrews. We've heard all these verses. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. We talked about that. In the same way, Jesus also suffered outside the camp to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, which we did all through Lent, stand at the foot of the cross and listen to his final words. But then, remember, he offered the sacrifice of himself, which brings him back into communion with the community and into the presence of God, and we get to go with him. It's a lonely place outside. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But into your hands, I entrust myself. That's us. He goes on. 
For there we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. That's outside the camp. Okay? Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Remember I told you, you still have the responsibility to offer sacrifices, just no animals. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with those for with such sacrifices God is pleased. That's Leviticus 16. God is pleased. On the Day of Atonement, he forgave all the sins, recalibrated. For us, that happens every minute of every day. God is over. He's forgiving your sin. You're a pleasing aroma to him. Therefore, we have the privilege of offering up that sacrifice, those sacrifices, which we're going to do in just a minute. Father, thank you for your deep love. Lord, the more we study your love, the more we stand in awe at how you know us so well and how you did everything needed to be done to love us, forgive us, and to to transform us into your image so that we could experience the same joy that you do. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we enter a time of communion, okay, maybe today communion might have a little bit different nuance for you. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and what? What did he do? Broke it. Said, this is my body, which is for you. There's that Passover lamb at work. Okay. After supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. That means the builder, the Holy Spirit, is now coming onto the scene and building this house that God envisioned all along. Had the blueprints and the plans all made. That's what that means. Both times he says, do this in remembrance of me. What is our response? To offer up a sacrifice of praise. That's our response. So I'm going to give you just a minute before we celebrate communion. And in the quietness of your own heart, just thank the Lord. Offer up praise for who he is and what he's done.